All right, let's uh, find our seats, and we will uh, begin here. I started your notes there at 1 Corinthians 15 again. We had kind of covered uh, that first page, but maybe I thought I thought maybe we should uh, sort of review so we know where we're at, what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 15. But before we do that, let's have the quiz here. Paul's prohibition concerning women speaking in the assembly would apply to asking questions in Sunday school. Most definitely should. <laughs> I guess we got our answer on that. You notice my wife wasn't here before you asked. <laughs> Well, Paul's talking about the worship service, it seems to be, when they're meeting and gathering together. So whatever we think, even if you thought that was an absolute prohibition, uh, you know, if, if, if someone thought that was an absolute prohibition, it probably wouldn't apply except just in the assembly. And I don't think it applies in that sense anyway. Failure to obey Paul's instructions was equal to a failure to, to obeying Jesus himself. That's exactly true. Paul says, what I say, the authority and what I'm saying is from the Lord. So to disobey the Bible is to disobey God. And Paul is writing scripture here, and to disobey Paul is to disobey God. That's just the same thing as disobeying Jesus in that sense. The Corinthians denied the bodily resurrection of Christ. It doesn't appear that they did. That's what's the strange thing. You think about this chapter and you you think you're going to read that somewhere, but Paul never says that. He never says what they denied was the bodily resurrection of believers. And you say, well, would they accept one and not the other? He never says they denied them. He says, here's what, here's what I preach and here's what you believe. He says you believed in the bodily resurrection of Christ. So, it's hard to see how those fit together, except maybe they assumed Christ was a special instance. He was God, and so he was raised bodily, glorified body, and we don't know. Paul does not deal exactly with that, but he doesn't say they denied Christ's resurrection. He assumes they believed it. He did, he's, the point is, when we get to verse 12, they clearly denied the bodily resurrection of believers, and he says... If you deny the bodily resurrection of believers, you would also have to deny the resurrection of Christ because they're tied together, as we'll see. Number four, Paul was the first apostle to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. False. I mean, they did it on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. You know. My point there was to say, Paul says, the things that I'm writing here in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3... They go back to the very earliest days. They're of first importance. They're the very earliest stages of the gospel preaching. Around the day of Pentecost, they were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're talking about the resurrection. And uh, I read this section, but let me just repeat some points about it here. Um, the second point here is the uh, second paragraph. I say Paul tackles this issue in chapter 12. We get to the point in verse 12, uh, chapter 15. The, we get to the, the issue in verse 12. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And we don't know how Paul came to be informed of this. I said maybe it was through that letter uh, because he mentions several times with this phrase, now about, he's referring to the letter of 7-1, and he repeats it again in 16. So we don't know exactly how, but maybe through that letter, we know he got some things, he says in chapter 5, through common report or rumors or he'd heard about these kinds of things. Um, I say, um, uh, say Paul does not, uh, does not say that uh, the Corinthians denied the resurrection of Christ. He doesn't say that, but a believer's. The Corinthians era is probably not rooted in some deliberate doctrinal rebellion, but an honest confusion. Now that's a theory, and it, it's, we're, we're getting that from the tone. Paul 
does not come down as hard as you might think. Like the Galatians, he is right on top of those people because they are, in a sense, denying the gospel with work salvation. So he's really tough on them. Uh, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let them be eternally condemned. But he doesn't do that exactly here. So maybe there's some honest confusion on their part. Um, this may go back to their Greek worldview. They grew up in a world where Greek thinking, Greek philosophy, believed in the immortality of the soul only. So that when you died, your soul went to be in the afterlife, believe it or not, afterlife, but not your body. Because the body was the prison house of the soul, and the body is the reason we do bad things and have evil thoughts. It's all based on the physical body. Um, so I say that traditional Greek thought divided the human being into body and soul. The soul was considered to be the prison of the body and so forth. At the time of death, the soul escaped. So why would anyone want to have a body again and imprison the soul a second time? And I mentioned this is maybe the thinking that Paul ran into in Athens in Acts 17 when they sneered at Paul because when he when he started talking about the resurrection of Jesus, well, that's just a bunch of nonsense, Paul. I mean, that's craziness. Nobody believes that. Well, he starts off talking about the resurrection of Christ in chapter 15, verses 1 through 28 here. I say it's probably thought by most of us that Paul begins his discussion by setting forth proof for the resurrection. Since he lists numerous occasions on which the resurrected Christ appeared to numerous believers, including himself. But Paul is really kind of reminding them of the early consensus concerning the preaching of the resurrection, the testimony of witnesses of that resurrection, a consensus which they agreed with. Paul's point is that if one believes in the resurrection of Christ, which is central to the gospel, then it itself proves that the resurrection of the dead is possible. You claim to believe in the resurrection of Christ? The resurrection of the dead, of the believing dead, should not be impossible. So, first of all, Christ's resurrection is an essential part of the gospel, 15, 1 through 5. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. See, you've taken your stand on this truth. By the gospel, you this gospel you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. So Paul's purpose in verses 1 through 19 is to explain the gospel he preached to the Corinthians and the importance of the resurrection to that gospel message. In 1 through 12, Paul lays out what he preached and what they believed. What Paul preached, the content of the gospel, is not explained until verse 3. Instead, he digresses momentarily to remind the Corinthians that the gospel he preached is also the one on which their past you received, their present you stand, and their future you are saved, that is, you will be saved, completely are based. But this is only true if they hold firmly to the word Paul preached, that is, the gospel. If they do not hold firmly obey what Paul says um, if they do not hold firmly they have believed in vain meaning their faith is worthless failure to do this hold on to continue to believe betrays a temporary and therefore inadequate faith this is something we've talked about before here this is another verse about what theologians call the doctrine of perseverance. It's teaching the doctrine of perseverance, sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. Grudem in his theology says, the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power. So we're eternally secure. God keeps us. and will God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end will be truly born again. 
So part of God's keeping us is that we continue. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints emphasizes both God's preservation of the believer, God keeps us, and the believers need to persevere, that is to continue in their Christian faith. The parallel concepts of preservation and perseverance are set forth in 1 Peter 1.5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So remember, we're kept by God. We're eternally secure, but that keeping includes the continuing faith of the believer. The believer is not kept irrespective of their faith. If one doesn't continue in faith, that is proof they have not been kept by God. A genuine believer will never voluntarily deny Christ. I say voluntarily. Now, if you're tortured, people have done it under torture. You know, that, that's happened. True believers have denied Christ under torture. Even Peter. <laughs> he wasn't tortured much <laughs> there, you know, the night of the crucifixion there, the night when Jesus was arrested. He denied Christ. But so people can deny Christ. Um, Hebrews thir- uh, 13 14 says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. This verse is saying that if we continue to believe as we did at the beginning of our salvation experience, this is proof that we have come to share in Christ. That is, that we are genuinely saved. Those who permanently, notice, permanently give up their profession of faith prove that they were never true believers to begin with. Paul says he's reconciled but now he has reconciled you if you continue in your faith. So perseverance says true believers will continue in their faith. Now they may backslide. They may fall away. Sometimes for quite a long time. But ultimately God will bring them back. They will come back and reaffirm their faith and so forth. But there are people who make professions of faith like the parable of the soils, you remember? Jesus gives examples of people who hear the word and so forth. And in that example, only one is really genuine, those that produce fruit and grow up, you know. So some people do make professions of faith, go along for a time, they seem to be genuine, but then they fall away, they reject. They'll even sometimes come out and vocally reject Christ, deny the faith, and so on. So the real test of, you know, Genuineness is continuation in the faith and so forth. That's how we can really judge people's profession of faith. Verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So we have an explanatory four here for what I received. Paul begins to introduce the gospel he preached. The words received and passed on are technical terms in Judaism for the transmission of religious instruction from one human to another. Paul uses the word received in that sense, maybe in 15.1. I want to remind you of the gospel, I preached to you what you received. And we saw it in 11.23 in connection with the instruction about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed to you. But rather than receiving these truths from a human being, as the language would seem to indicate, Paul claims he first got these truths by direct revelation from Christ. In Galatians 1, 11, and 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, what's going on there in Galatians, remember, is Paul's apostleship is being challenged. And so chapters 1 and 2 is all about establishing his apostleship. And he's trying to explain his relationship to the 12. And he says, you know, I was saved on the road to Damascus. God called me to be an apostle. And I didn't have any contact, any contract, any contact 
with the Jerusalem apostles for three years. Very clear there. You know, I did, he's trying to show, you know, I, I didn't, I'm not some disciple primarily of the apostles in that sense. I did, he, says, he says in chapter 1, I didn't see him for three years. And I went down there for 15 days. And 15 days is not long enough to get a seminary degree. <clears throat> so I didn't really get my training and that from this problem. And then I went down to Jerusalem 14 years later, chapter 2. And I saw who the people who were leaders in the church there, the pillars, and they didn't add anything to me. So he's very clear to establish his sort of independence in a way that he's not a sub-apostle underneath them. He has apostolic authority. And he says that here. But here he uses this language of what I received, I passed on to you. I say we can resolve this seeming conflict if we remember that in Galatians, that, that Galatians stresses what, that the essential truth of the gospel was revealed to Paul by Christ and not taught to him by any human being. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, he wants to remind the Corinthians that Christ's death for sins and especially his resurrection are the common teaching of the early church. And so he points out that he has handed on to them the common teaching that he also received. So, you know, Paul got this from Christ on the Damascus Road. He was taught by Christ. But he also, you know, was react, interacted with other Christians, other apostles and others. He was, he, this was a common truth. Um, so... Here in 1 Corinthians, he reminds them that this is the common teaching, and especially his resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, are, are the common teaching of the church. And so he points out that he has handed on to them the common teaching he received. These basic facts go back to the very beginning of the Christian era. Before Paul became a Christian, these truths were established as matters of first importance. These are the basic facts of the gospel message. It is commonly understood that there are three basic truths in the gospel message. So if you ask people sometimes, give me the gospel. Well, Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. They think about 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. There's three things. There. Christ died, according, as the scriptures say, according to the scriptures, he was buried, rose again. So we think of three basic things. However, as one reads these verses, it might appear there are four elements the death of Christ, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, his burial, that he was buried, three, his resurrection, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and four, his appearance to Cephas and the twelve, and that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve. So you could say there are four things, but we should probably understand that there are two primary elements here. First is his death with his burial given because it is proof of his death. So Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And we know he died because he was buried. So the burial here is sort of proof of that. Then we have his resurrection. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And verse 5 is the proof of his being raised. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. I say that Christ died for our sins is the central tenet of the Christian faith. The phrase, according to the scripture, probably refers to numerous passages in the Old Testament. This might begin with the truth that God provided the death of a spotless lamb as part of Israel's rescue from the bondage of Egypt. This, in turn, became part of the sacrificial system in which animals bore the sins of people on the Day of Atonement. And this language is picked up once more in Isaiah to describe the one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, 53.7, to take away the sins of the people. Thus, the death of Christ was according, as Peter says in 2.23, Acts 2, according to the deliberate plan and foreknowledge of God. So this was all Old Testament planned out and so forth. When Paul says Christ died for our sins, the preposition for here, who pair indicates substitution. Christ died as a substitute for us. He died in our place. His death was a penal substitution. That's an important two words there. Remember those two words. Christ's death was a penal substitution. He was 
paying a penalty, the penalty of sin, the wrath of God, had to be satisfied. It was a penal substitution in that he suffered the penalty for our sins. Without penal substitution, there is no good news. Remember, I put up this slide uh, before about uh, a sure sign of a departure from the gospel. Remember that uh, the Getty song says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church USA, proposed a substitute till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They want, they want to get rid of that penal substitution. When people want to get rid of penal substitution, this is a sure sign that people have departed from the gospel. And unfortunately, PCUSA has departed from the gospel. It's hard to keep these Presbyterian denominations uh, 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 separated and correct because some of them are evangelical, like the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, is an evangelical Presbyterian organization that stands for the clear gospel and the fundamentals of the faith. The PCUSA, Presbyterian split a number of times. Anyway, they are they are the more lib- they are the liberal group. I'm not saying there aren't true Christians in PCUSA churches. There certainly are, but the denomination as a whole. Their leadership, their doctrinal position is away from the gospel. So there are people who call themselves Christians who are not really Christians, who have denied the fundamentals of the faith. Now this is a this is a relatively new phenomenon in Christianity. So from the Reformation, as the Reformation starts forward in the 1500s, you have Martin Luther. And Luther, after him comes the Lutheran denomination. So you have these denominations that come out of the Reformation, the Lutheran denomination. Calvin, John Calvin, you have the Reformed denominations. So you have a number of what we call Reformed. Presbyterians are Reformed, but that comes more out of Scotland. John Knox, the Reformation there. But you have the Christian Reformed Church, Grand Rapids, you have Reformed Church, you have all kinds of Reformed churches and so forth. Uh, Wesley comes along, and you have the 1700s, you have the Methodist denomination comes out of the Church of England. The Church of England, of course, break, Henry VIII breaks away in the 16th century and starts the Church of England. The Church of England, the Anglican Church, doctrinal statement is a gospel, is, it has the true gospel, the 39 articles has the genuine gospel in it. But the Church of England, unfortunately, through the years, has become more and more liberal. There are real evangelicals in the Church of England. It's a it's a hodgepodge. So we have books in our resource center about J.I. Packer, who is a well-known evangelical conservative guy in the Anglican Church and so forth. So you have conservative Anglicans I just saw online the other day about um, I was looking at some church, an Anglican church so some Anglicans have broken away in America, the Church of England it's called the Anglican Church and in the in, after the Revolutionary War the Church of England in America is called the Episcopal Church and uh, so um, in, in America um uh, the Episcopal Church, like the Church of England, has become quite liberal. I saw a church in the Washington, D.C. area where they, they've broken away because they want to stand for the gospel. They formed a new denomination, the Anglican Church something, you know, and they have various churches. So so what I'm saying is, in these denominations, like the Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church, the Baptist, so there are Baptists who are liberal. This liberalism starts in the night in the in the 1800s primarily. I mean, it starts before, but in the 1800s, 1900s, in all these denominations, you have people who are in the leadership, the teachers, teachers in seminaries and schools, who start denying the basic fundamentals of the faith. That gives rise in the early part of the 20th century to a to a big split, a big debate between what are called the fundamentalist and the modernist. 
So in the early part of the 20th century, those who denied certain fundamentals like the resurrection of Christ, the penal substitutionary death of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the inspiration and errancy of Scripture, the bodily resurrection of Christ, these they, they denied all the miraculous events in the Bible. So these people were called the modernists. There were certain people called fundamentalists in these denominations, in Baptists, Presbyterians. And so you had splits and new denominations formed and so forth. So it's a hodgepodge out there. If you go to a Presbyterian church, you don't know what you... You just don't know. You walk in. You could be an evangelical church. You could be in a liberal church. <laughs> you might hear the gospel. You might hear something entirely different. You know, It's true... The Methodist, United Methodist Church has unfortunately departed quite a bit, you know, and so uh, in the denominations. In the Baptist, uh, there are liberal Baptist groups. So you have these liberal tendencies. And what I'm saying is there are certain fundamentals of the gospel. One of them is this penal substitution. When people deny that, they're starting to depart, or they are departing from the gospel. So this is very important. Christ died in our place. He died for our sin. When we say for, we mean in our place as a substitute for our sins. I say, as mentioned, the fact that he was buried functions to verify the reality of Christ's death. <clears throat> there was a dead corpse that was laid in the tomb. Paul's main point and purpose of this discussion is that Christ was raised on the third day. This is a matter of first importance. The previous verbs, died and buried, are in a tense that indicate a completed past event. When speaking of the resurrection, the verb was raised, is in a tense that indicates that not only was Christ raised, but he still lives. There's a question whether the phrase, according to the scriptures, modifies on the third day, as would seem from our English translation, or he was raised. And we just read, it says, he was raised on the third day according... He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Um, so some there is some debate about how to... Uh, what this phrase according to the scriptures modifies. The reason is because it's hard to find anywhere in the Old Testament that says Jesus will be raised on the third day in the Old Testament according to the scriptures. It's hard to find anything like that. So some would argue that we should take this phrase according to the scriptures, that he was raised according to the scriptures. The scriptures talk about the resurrection. The Old Testament we looked at talks about that. He was raised according to the scriptures. But it's a little more difficult if it says he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I say here, there are Old Testament references which were understood by the early church to point to the Messiah's resurrection. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. So, like uh, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With Him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. So this is taken as a messianic psalm, sort of prophesying or typifying the Messiah, David's greater son. Nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasure. You won't let your faithful one see decay. This is picked up in Acts 2, 39 through 32. Fellow Israelites, Peter says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So Peter refers back to that psalm there um, Psalm 110.1 the most quoted psalm in the New Testament the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool uh, 
Acts 2.34. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand. So this is David speaking in Psalm 110. The Lord, notice the two words, Lord, are different there. That Lord is that Old Testament word Yahweh. So the Yahweh or the Father, probably in this case. The Father says to David's Lord, the Messiah. The Father says to the Messiah, Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so Peter picks up on that. David didn't send to heaven, you know. But yet, the Lord said to my Lord, said to my... So so Peter is talking here and discussing the resurrection there in Acts chapter 2. He's pointing to these Old Testament texts that we're talking about. Isaiah 53. We're familiar with this one. Yes, it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And through the and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge of my righteousness, servants shall justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils. He won't remain in the grave. He's got a future, this suffering servant, this Messiah. So that's the, that's the kind of text that probably Peter and others are appealing to to say that the Old Testament, according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament scriptures, the Messiah would, would die and he would uh, come back to life. He'd be resurrected again. Uh, so I say here, there are Old Testament references, so one can easily say he was raised according to the scriptures. That's easy. But it's difficult to find the Old Testament references to the resurrection on the third day. If we take that phrase, on the third day, is, the, is what according to the scriptures is modified. In Greek, it's possible that according to the scriptures modifies either one. That is, he was raised according to the scriptures or he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's possible. Now, more likely, it's on the third day as we have it here. So what do we do with that? Well, that's difficult. I don't, I'm not positive. Some people have pointed to these kinds of texts that may have been in their minds. Hosea 6.2, after two days he will revive us, and the third day he will restore us. That's tricky. Jonah, remember, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow. He was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's not exactly a prediction, but Jesus did you know, refer to that when he said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the well, the Son of Man will be in the belly of the well. Matthew 12.39, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. So some have pointed to that. But it is difficult to know exactly what Paul is referring to, especially in the Old Testament here. Um, I say the fact that... Uh, The fact that the resurrected Christ appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve functions to verify the reality of Christ's resurrection, that Christ was raised, and then he appeared to various individuals, is so crucial to the, for the present argument that Paul will add four more appearances to these two in verses 6 through 8. Paul commonly refers to Peter by his Aramaic name Cephas. Remember he says he, repeared, he appeared to Cephas, that's the Aramaic equivalent of the Greek Peter. Uh, he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Some have thought that Paul should have been the twelfth apostle and thus the proper replacement for Judas. But with the reference to the twelve, Paul distinguishes himself and his apostleship from that group. So Paul is not a part of the twelve, whose names will be, according to Revelation 12, on that, put on the city. He is a, he's the apostle of the Gentiles and not the twelfth apostle. Well, Paul goes on. Uh, Christ's resurrection was historically attested by many witnesses, verses 6 through 10. After that, after Peter and the twelve, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, Paul says, at this time, which is about... Uh, 
which is about maybe 25 years after the resurrection. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. These three additional items are designed to emphasize the validity of the tradition that in Jesus' case, a real resurrection was involved. These witnesses also form a chain from Cephas to the twelve, to the five hundred of James, to the apostles, and then in verse 8 we'll see to Paul himself. This helps establish a continuity in the message that Paul passed on to the Corinthians that goes back to the very beginning. It is generally assumed that James, in verse 7, is the brother, that is the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church, remember in Acts 12, Acts 15, 21, Galatians 1, 19, uh, Galatians 2, actually, and the writer of the book of James, James 1, 1. The appearance to the 500 and James are not mentioned, appearances are not mentioned in the gospel accounts, but of course, they are selective in what they report. The gospel accounts don't tell us everything that happened in Jesus' life. Remember that famous verse from John 21, Jesus did many other things. If every one of them was written down, the whole world wouldn't have room for the books that could have been written. The appearance to all the apostles could have been at Christ's ascension. Maybe that's what Paul is referring to here. 15.8 And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So Christ's appearance, last appearance was to Paul on the road to Damascus. We may think of Paul's Damascus Road experience as only a sort of vision of Christ, but Paul considered it an actual appearance equal to the previously cited ones. After Jesus' ascension, which signaled the end of his resurrection appearances, no one expected to see him again. Nevertheless, Paul considered Jesus' appearance to himself equal to the previous ones he just cited. Yet he recognized it was unusual, like one abnormally born. His salvation and call to be an apostle on the Damascus Road was not the normal way Jesus had chosen his other apostles. It was rather unusual, wasn't it? He didn't walk with Christ during the earth. He wasn't chosen like that. It was unusual, abnormal. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, to me, was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul goes on to explain with this four here, his abnormal birth by noting that while he is an apostle, he considers himself to be the least of the apostles, and not even worthy to be called apostle. Although he thought killing the followers of Jesus was a godly enterprise, actually he was persecuting the church of God. Paul was not acting for God, but against him. With his background as a persecutor of Christians, Paul was the last person one would have expected to be chosen as an apostle. But that's the very nature of Christianity itself. Nothing is deserved, nothing is earned. And so everything is by grace. For as Paul says, by the grace of God I am what I am. Later he will write in Romans 1 5, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Grace takes persons who are not worthy or sufficient and transforms them into instruments useful to God. The grace of God not only saved Paul and made him an apostle but it was the source of his apostolic success. Grace empowers and equips us. Paul actually worked harder than the, all the other apostles, but even that effort was not a result of his own human efforts alone, but the grace of God that was with him. Well, see here, Christ's resurrection was uniformly preached by all the apostles and was believed by the Corinthians. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. In 15, 1 through 4, Paul reminded the Corinthians what he preached to them, 
Now, after listing all the witnesses of the resurrected Christ in 15, 5 through 10, he shifts to the first person plural and refers to what all the apostles preach as a matter of common practice. This is what we preach, and this is what you believed. There is only one true gospel, whoever may preach it. All gospel preaching proclaims the resurrection of Christ as an essential element. Otherwise, there is no gospel. D, Christ's resurrection is fundamental to salvation and all else that relates to Christian experience. Paul now explains the reason he has broached the subject of the resurrection here in chapter 15. Here's what made him write chapter 15. It is because some of the Corinthians were denying the bodily resurrection of the dead, specifically dead believers. Having established historically the truth of the resurrection of Christ and the fact that this is the tradition that all the apostles endorsed and were preaching, Paul shows how wrong that element in the Corinthian church is who say there is no resurrection of the dead. As noted above, those erroneous people were not denying the resurrection of Christ per se, as far as we can tell, only the future resurrection of believers. But as Paul will soon point out, one cannot have it both ways. One cannot believe in the resurrection of Christ and then deny the eventual resurrection of believers for the resurrection, as he'll say. It's kind of a single package. They're tied together. In 15, 12 through 19, Paul correlates the principle that Christ has been raised with the Corinthians excuse me, that Christ has been raised with the Corinthians' denial of the resurrection of the dead to expose the logical implications of this denial. He sets up, as it were, theological dominoes that fall one after another. When the first domino falls, if Christ is not raised, if we start there, if Christ is not raised, then everything else is knocked over. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul's issue with the Corinthians is now made clear. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, the rest of the chapter is very clear. We're talking about the resurrection of believers. In other words, given that you believe in the resurrection of Christ, how is it that some of you are denying the future bodily resurrection of believers? The Corinthians are not denying that they will die, nor are they arguing that there is no future existence at all. The problem for the Corinthians is with the dead and their rising. That the dead have a future existence in some bodily form. The Corinthians probably retained the view of the afterlife common in Greek philosophy. According to this view, humans are composed of two inharmonious parts, body and soul, that are of unequal value. At death, the mortal body is shed like a snake skin, and the immortal soul continues in a purely spiritual existence. The body was seen as a prison and the source of much of man's depravity. Maybe the Corinthians had problems with the idea of a bodily resurrection because they viewed the idea of the resurrection of the dead in literal terms of the reanimation of dead corpses. Um, we're just guessing here, but here's a theory. Maybe they thought when you talk about the resurrection of the dead, you're just talking about the reanimation of dead corpses. The resurrection of a body that perishes and rots is rather repulsive. Like those shows that dominate. Were those zombies or... I don't watch it, but I've seen enough of those commercials, of those highlights, you know, where they're walking around with, you know what I'm talking about, right? No, Dr. Yeah, yeah. What is, what is it called? What are they, are they, are they zombies or are they just dead people who get out of the grave and? The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead. There it is. The Walking Dead. Yeah. Okay. So maybe they thought, hey, this is rather repulsive. It would be, wouldn't it? Paul will later reject that viewpoint and explain that God will give us an imperishable body perfectly fitted for our new existence. And he'll explain that later. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. For the sake of argument, Paul assumes the Corinthian view. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if that's, you know, you can't have resurrection of people to new bodies, then 
Christ can't be raised. The logical conclusion of such a view is that no one has either risen or ever will be raised from the dead, which must further mean that not even Christ has been raised. So maybe, though they're not technically denying the resurrection of the Christ, if you deny the resurrection of believers, if you deny a bodily resurrection for them, Paul says the implication is you would be denying the resurrection of Christ. Verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If the Corinthians are correct that there is no resurrection, which means Christ was not raised from the dead, then the preaching of Paul and the other apostles is useless, that is, without any basis. In addition, the very faith of the Corinthians has no basis and is totally useless. Verse 15, more than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been, has not been raised either. It would be bad enough if Christian preaching and our faith were simply mistaken and useless. However, the logical conclusion of the Corinthians' position is that there is no resurrection with its consequence that Christ is not raised is not only that the preaching of Paul and the other apostles is useless, but it turns out to be a lie. We are false witnesses uh, about God. If we are preaching this, then we're false with It's a lie. And more than that, it's a lie in God's name. That's a very serious offense. We're going around lying in God's name because we're claiming that God raised Christ, his son, from the dead. Verse 17 and 18. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Without the resurrection of Christ, according to Paul, there is no salvation from sin. The Corinthians and all of us are still in our sins. But why, we might ask? Supposed to be why is, not it, but... Why is the truthfulness of the resurrection of Christ necessary to our salvation? In modern times, numerous people who claimed to be Christians have denied the resurrection of Christ. This goes back to this, what we talked about, the liberalism that crept into Christianity and uh, dominated the later part of the 18th, the early part of the 20th century. One of the fundamental things they denied was the resurrect, the bodily resurrection of Christ. If Christ was raised, it was some sort of spiritual kind of thing and not, not some miraculous bodily resurrection. This is a common, more liberal viewpoint. And it's not really Christianity, but it disguises itself. One might, one answer might be that the resurrection was part of the gospel that Paul and the apostles preached. So, if the resurrection is a lie, then what is to keep his, deny, his dying for our sins from being another piece of fiction? So one way you could think about the resurrection is essential, maybe you could just say, well, Paul preached the death and resurrection of Christ, and if, if Christ was not raised from the dead, that's a lie, and then how can you believe whatever Paul said? But there's actually a more fundamental reason. There's a theological connection, a more fundamental. Paul says in Romans 4.25, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We're talking about Christ. Christ was delivered over to death for our sins. There's that penal substitution for our sins. And was raised to life for our justification. Paul argues that the resurrection authenticates and confirms that our justification has been secured. Remember, justification is the fundamental doctrine of salvation. We are declared righteous. We're forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. But the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. God looks at us as righteous because we are in Christ. We're accepted in Him. 
The resurrection demonstrates that God's wrath against sin was satisfied in the penal substitution of his son. In Philippians, Paul says that because Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Grudem says in his theology, by raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was in effect saying that he approved of Christ's work of suffering and dying for our sins, that his work was completed and that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. There was no penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath of God to bear, no more guilt or liability to punishment. All had been completely paid for and no guilt remained. In the resurrection, God was saying to Christ, I approve of what you have done, and you have favor in my sight. And the consequences of all this would mean that those believers who have already passed away, fallen asleep, are lost and without hope. They are no better off than unbelievers. They have no glorious future life. This is almost certainly the opposite of what the Corinthians believed. Although they denied that there is a resurrection of the dead, it's unlikely in light of their baptizing for the dead, verse 29, we'll get to. Maybe the rapture will happen. hope the rapture takes place first, and I don't have to explain what that verse means <laughs> because I still don't know what it means, but maybe I'll find out by the time we get there. Although they denied that there is a resurrection of the dead, it's unlikely in light of their baptizing for the dead that they also thought there was no future for people who have died. Most likely, they probably believed the dead shed their bodies and entered into some kind of spiritual existence. But Paul says, no, they have perished. Verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul means that if in this life we have set our hope only in Christ and nothing more, which is in fact what the genuine Christians have done, then we are all people to be pitied if it were true that Christ had not been raised. If Christ has not been raised and demonstrated that God is satisfied with the work of Christ, we are living our lives based on dreams and speculation, on nothing more than wishful thinking. Our hope is nothing more than whistling in the dark. We are pathetic dupes taken in by a colossal fraud. Well, there's more to say, but uh, why don't we stop there for today? And because uh, this next section is a little longer there, and we'll try to summarize and pick up here next time. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for these great truths that we're studying about the penal substitution of Christ and the resurrection of Christ as a demonstration and proof that you are satisfied with the work of your Son, that he completed our salvation on the cross. It's finished, perfected, and that we have a right standing with you because of the work of Christ. How thankful we are, Lord, for these great truths. Give us a greater appreciation and may it cause us to be submissive and desirous to honor and serve you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.